0: song is perfect I uh, leaned over to my daughter when it started little Gianna there I said now this is a song in Christ alone is a song that when you worship if you're not singing about what Jesus has done and who Jesus is what are you worshiping right so in Christ alone is, is perfect please turn in your Bibles if you have them to Luke chapter 19 Luke chapter 19. Last week, I—I uh, I think I'm not sure—I think I mentioned briefly that uh, I may push out the beginning of our series through pastoral letters or through the pastoral letters, which is First and Second Timothy and Titus, and that's what I'm—that's what I've decided to do. But for good reason, I think, not because it isn't ready. Um, it's my sincere prayer that God will be pleased to use that series to shape the direction and identity of our church for the future. With that in mind, there are some interruptions, for lack of a better word, over the next two months or so on Sunday mornings that would break up that kind of series a little too much for it to be coherent. And so uh, also there are some more conversations I probably need to have before we go there. So I have a different plan for us on Sunday mornings, just, just for a little while. This week and next week, we'll look at two moments from the life of Jesus. Then we'll Take about three Sundays after that for a short uh, topical series, which I think is also, I, I hope, is very important through Ephesians 3-5 through 5, to focus on how the church is designed by God to grow up together into maturity through the gospel. And then we'll have a few more standalone messages. We'll have a guest speaker, I think, on two Sunday mornings, uh, one being the ending to our conference in March. Those guys will be here on the 28th, and then one of them... We'll be preaching on Sunday morning, the 29th, and then uh, I may be gone preaching for a friend at his church, and so uh, we'll miss two there. But that basically will bring us to Palm Sunday and Easter, and then on which—that's insane—but we can already put those on the calendar. But on April 19th, we'll be able to start the pastoral letters. So that—that's where we're going. Just in case you wanted to be able to sleep tonight, that's where we're. that's where we're going over the next couple of weeks. <laughs> I'm guessing that uh, many of you watched the State of the Union address this past Tuesday night. And depending on which side of the aisle you sit on, it was either a great speech or a terrible one. You know, you, very rarely are we neutral or indifferent to those kinds of things. Either it was a you loved it or you hated it. Uh, but <clears throat> have you ever heard somebody say... Something along the lines of, you know, when you're at work, especially, or at a family function, or in public, or something, you can't talk about religion or politics. Those are the two things you can't talk about. Those are the two topics you can't touch if you want to keep things civil, right? Do you know why that is? I think it's because those are the two biggest sources of hope in the world, religion And politics people either hope in their religion to save them solve all their problems make all their dreams come true or they hope in politics to save them solve all their problems and make all their dreams come true in that formula in that formula both religion and politics are idols if that's what you're looking to get out of them mainly and you cannot insult people's idols. You can't insult people's saviors. So don't talk about the two things that get people the most riled up. The two things that spark the most disagreement. Beloved, what do you really hope that Jesus is going to do in this world? Because Jesus can do things for you. Jesus is a king. Now what kind of king do you think Jesus is? What kind of conquest Do you hope that Jesus is on in this world? Search and destroy your enemies or seek and save them? Who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus was nothing like the rulers of this world. He came to seek and to save his enemies rather than destroy them. That should be instructive to his people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this irrevocable truth that you've given to us about your son. And Father, please watch over my soul, my mind, my mouth this morning. Help me speak, please. Please, Lord, be with me. Watch over everyone that is here to listen. Enable everyone to understand and believe. I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We read the first two verses to start of Luke chapter 19. It says, He, which is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, Zacchaeus is a kind of a hard character to figure out in the story of Jesus. He's a tax collector. Jesus seems to be very kind to tax collectors, but he's also rich. And Jesus said, it's very hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Zacchaeus is probably very rich. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, which means he was in charge of several other tax collectors within a district. And they would have paid him commissions off of what they would have been gouging each of their customers for. So he's a very rich man. All his wealth, however is built on the suffering of Jewish people at the hands of the Romans. What an enemy of God's people, then, Zacchaeus would have been. What a threat to them. Look at verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. I believe the text says in some translations he was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. (laughs) So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must, such a big word in Luke, I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So it didn't matter ultimately. How big of an obstacle Zacchaeus's occupation or wealth was to the possibility of his salvation? What is impossible with men is possible with God. It's Luke 18:27. Did you notice, as we read the connection between verses five and nine, in light of verse 10, the Savior saw a sinner who could not save himself and said to him, "I must stay." At your house today. Why? Because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. If that's the case, he must be in the houses of lost people. He had to stay at Zacchaeus' house. He's a lost son of Abraham. When Jesus comes, salvation comes. That's what characterizes his kingdom. Jesus is on a quest to save the sons and daughters of Abraham. That is, all those who will have faith in him. That's who the Son of Man, the prophesied one, is. Notice here, please, salvation didn't come to Zacchaeus' house since he gave half of his goods to the poor and repaid four times over anyone he had defrauded. Salvation did not come to his house since he did with his wealth what the rich ruler in 1823 could not do with his Salvation came to his house because Jesus broke through all the barriers to save Zacchaeus. And the result of that was that he gave to the poor and paid back the people he had cheated. Zacchaeus was saved because Jesus seeks and saves the lost sons and daughters of Abraham. That's the reason why the word, why we see the word since in verse 9. Do you notice that? Not that he made everything right with his money. That's not why salvation came to his house. Zacchaeus didn't chase salvation down. Salvation chased Zacchaeus down out of a tree and then went and sat at his table. Now, with that in mind, look at verse 11. As they heard these things, things like verse 10, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So, the scene in Zacchaeus' house is the occasion for this parable. The two are related. Jesus saving this tax collector, who was a son of Abraham, while being close to Jerusalem and while people were thinking the kingdom of God was about to appear, with those things in mind, then we can understand the parable properly. Jesus is speaking specifically into the expectations people have for him since he claims to be the Son of Man. This divine and prophesied figure, very powerful from the book of Daniel. Since Luke 9.51, Jesus has been headed very deliberately towards Jerusalem, and now he's almost there. He is the Son of God, the Son of Man. He is God's divine king, and with him comes the kingdom. Luke 17.21. He is saving he is reigning in that sense now. He is finally near the great city. All kinds of messianic expectations will reach a fever pitch as the king heads into Jerusalem. The blind beggar rightly called him the son of David. That's the Messiah. Jesus himself is referring to sons of Abraham. So there's all this, these words that are triggering these ideas. Surely this was the moment when the kingdom was going to appear, or apparently... Many thought so because they think that way, he tells them this parable. Look at verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. There's no mention here of a delay of any kind. That's important. 13 calling 10 of his servants. He gave them 10 minas about three months wages for a laborer and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. So this Lord is not Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus not even close. Jesus isn't unjust. Jesus doesn't steal. Right? You, you This is a text the Mormons use to talk about how they'll gain all these planets and cities and you got to read the text with Jesus at the center, not what you want at the center. Right? Jesus isn't like that. What's happening here then? Look at verse 22. He said to him, "I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant." You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. The nobleman, this nobleman, has no pity, no kindness. The servant was right to be afraid of him. The servant is correct in what he's thought about him. Look at verse 25. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Beloved, this nobleman is a tyrant. Now you have to think for a minute here. Nobleman is not a word that Jesus usually uses in these parables when he's talking about himself. Jesus and his Father are never spoken of in the Bible in such terms as these. In fact, as I was saying, noblemen in this culture to this audience would have instantly brought up Roman images and Roman culture, not Jewish ones. I think that begins to shed light on Jesus' meaning here. He is near Jerusalem. They suppose that the kingdom is going to appear immediately. If the kingdom is going to appear immediately, the people are wondering what kind of king... Will he be? Is the Son of Man, the King of Heaven and Earth, is he like a Roman king? A Roman lord? Is he harsh and cruel, slaughtering his enemies right in front of him, just like the Romans do all the time and will end up doing to Jesus? Although the parable probably doesn't refer to any specific event within the Roman world, it would have had elements to it that a Jewish audience would have been very familiar with historian Josephus blamed the internal fighting between the priests, Hyrcanus and Aristobulus, for the fact that the Jews had lost their freedom and become subject to the Romans and their aristocracy in the first place. Jewish people hated Roman rule with good reason. It was oppressive and harsh to them. When King Herod died, he left his kingdom to his three living sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. The inheritance had to be validated or confirmed by the Roman Empire. So Archelaus traveled to Rome to get the support of Augustus, the emperor. The Judeans, of course, revolted, sent a delegation of 50 people to oppose his appointment because Archelaus was so brutal to them. But when he got back to Jerusalem, he was the Tetrarch, not the king. So he just deposed the high priest Joazar, replaces him with Eleazar. All that was not accomplished nicely or kindly, or without blood. It was accomplished through violence and oppression and disregard and cruelty. The nobleman's actions in this parable are those of a flippant Roman ruler, not the son of man. Bloodlust is the trait of the worldly rulers they would have been familiar with. They conquer and hold their power through bullying and violence and force with disregard for the people they conquer. They're unfair and scary and capricious. But what about this king? What about this king? What about the Son of Man? What's he like? Well, the front of the chapter told you what he was like. Now listen at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. That's interesting. You don't question it. We'll kill you right here and now. Be quiet. We're taking it. The Lord wants it. He takes what he doesn't deposit. Right? You see the very deliberate difference in the text? Verse 35, and they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, I'm sorry, they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace. In heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him. Teacher rebuke your disciples. He answered I tell you if these were silent. The very stones would cry out. When the priority of the king is verse 10. To seek and to save the lost. This is the kind of king that comes. The mount that the son of man is riding on. Always matches the mission he is on. But what were the Jewish people here at this moment hoping for? Was Jesus going to climb on a conquering war horse, lay waste to his enemies, slaughter them in front of him so that he can rise to power? Is he just going to turn the tables now in favor of the Jews? No. Book-ending this parable is Jesus reclining at table in a sinful tax collector's house, and later on in chapter 19, on the back of a donkey's colt, this same Jesus weeping over Jerusalem for rejecting him and not doing what he had commanded of them. That's very different than the parable. In Luke's gospel, this parable sets up a contrast between Jesus, the Son of Man, and an evil tyrant king who is hated by his people and likes to kill his enemies as a spectator sport. Jesus' parable here is to correct any notion from anybody in his audience or ours that the saving kingdom, kingdom of God will somehow appear as this great political institution. Remember, it cannot be observed like that. That is not what it is. Luke 17, 20, and 21. The kingdom of God is nothing like the Roman Empire. It is nothing like any worldly king, foreign or domestic. God's reign was already present. The king was already in their midst doing those things, doing all of those things that proved he was beginning his reign. Seeking and saving sinners. Proving that he was conquering the greatest tyrants, death, and Satan himself. This crowd needs to know. We know that from verse 11. They need to know that Jesus is not that kind of king. He is going to lay down his life for his enemies, not slaughter them. That's what the kingdom of God is like. That's what characterizes the reign of Jesus, salvation. Then all through this next Section, if we were to read ahead, Jesus contrasts himself with earthly kings and kingdoms. 22, 24 to 47. Jesus destroys imperial worldly ideology. Jesus is humble, meek. That's how he's so powerful. He gives up his life for others, dies forgiving his enemies. He serves, he seeks, he saves. Jesus has already received his kingdom. We know that. That's not what this parable is about. I don't think it's about his followers being faithful to do their duty in his absence. As other parables talk about, the entire parable focuses on this nobleman. That's its focus. And how he deals with his servants and with his enemies. That's what it's about. Jesus is contrasting himself with the rulers and kingdoms of this world... Just as he's about to ride into the holy city on the back of a donkey. Just after he saved the tax collector. And just before he's about to weep because they won't believe in him. Rather than kill them for not believing in him and submitting to him like a Roman king would. Later on the Romans won't be able to fathom that Jesus is a king. They'll mock him for it. They scoffed at him. Why? Because he had no army. There was no violence he had incited his followers to commit. He had no wealth. He had no visible power over anything that they could see. They would have been been asking, well then where is his kingdom if you're a king? Why? Because the only way you know there's a kingdom is if you can see it. If it's a worldly one. Now imagine... Of course, we're picking this text out of Luke, but imagine how this would have shaken, what, Luke, what is, Luke is presenting us to us here from the life of Jesus, how this would have shaken Theophilus and those Christians that Luke was writing to specifically. We find that on the first four verses of the gospel. They're still suffering under the power and pressure of Rome. Words like this are a bummer if you're being oppressed by a worldly tyrant. Or empire. So Jesus is not. Going to. Kick them out and take over them. The laws aren't going to turn in our favor. We're not going to have the majority. Okay. All right. I think I think Jesus wants to ensure that his followers don't ever think. That's what his kingdom looks like. Jesus never lied to us. We just lie to ourselves about what he actually said. Is Jesus coming this first time then, the first time, to seek and save the lost? Is that a disappointment for those of us who want his kingdom to be of this world? Do you groan at Jesus because he hasn't ridden in yet on a white horse or through some political leader to change things in his favor? Are you worn out by all of this salvation for sinners thing? We do not adapt the world's ways and means of overthrowing enemies or overpowering them by sheer numbers or by force. We are not Islam. That is not what we do. That is not who we are. That's not how the gospel spreads. It's not even set up to be successful if you put it in power and wisdom. Beloved, look at Zacchaeus. Look at Zacchaeus as an immediate example here. Because people tend to criticize, one of the criticisms against Christianity from without and from within nowadays, is that Christianity is out of touch with the real needs of the world. It's just this spiritual talk about what happens to you when you die, apparently. So it's not really helping anything. It's outdated. It's archaic. It doesn't really address the real needs of the moment. Look at the story of Zacchaeus. One guy. We know his name because Luke tells it to us. Were the poor helped here? Was injustice addressed and reversed? Yes. Why? Because one tax collector got saved. Jesus' work in this one man's life Alleviated the suffering of the poor and the defrauded that he had hurt and taken from. That didn't happen because Jesus got in power and changed the tax laws. It happened because salvation came to one man's house, just one. And, beloved, that's the strategy. That's why you see Jesus doing this and not overtaking Rome, because that's the strategy. We're still here when the king came down the Mount of Olives on a donkey. The white horse is coming, but it hasn't come yet. Where you are, where you live, your house, you are the church where you live, where you are. You are light. You are salt for your neighbors, for your town. Acts would teach us that's why we all live in Moundsville and Glendale and Cameron and Glen Easton and all these other places. That's why. Because the strategy is seek and save. Embassies of heaven are everywhere in this world so that through us the king may continue his mission of seeking and saving. As the father has sent me so I send you. That is how Jesus conquers in this age. So well, yeah, but this is, this is so little. This is only a few people. Right. So imagine if the witness of one is this potent in the world. What would happen if more and more people got saved? We're kidding ourselves if you think you shove people into this can of having to do what you want them to do and can then share this wonderful gospel of grace and mercy with them. It's backwards. What could be reversed in our country? How many street corners would be aflame with the message of the gospel if every Christian remembered were on a seek and save mission, not a search and destroy mission? But hey, boycotting is easier than mission, right? It's easier. It's much easier to sit on your couch and yell at the news. It's just easier. And it makes you feel very holy to be on the right side of things. So you can just feel holy right into doing nothing, right? Because you have all the right beliefs and you support the right things. And so you can just, you can just complain about how wicked the world is. I mean, my goodness, I mean, that was the Super Bowl halftime show, right? Christians haven't been able to stop. Like, turn it off if you don't like it. Quit nagging the world. They're wicked. What are we here for? The world doesn't need more nags. Ask anyone you know. Hey, would you like another person nagging you in your life? Yes, I would. Could you get a whole group of people to do that for me, please? (laughs) It's easier to sit back and do nothing and wait for some massive nationwide revival of some kind to get the right people elected because that's what that's all about. It's easier to do that than it is to love and serve your neighbor that lives next door. It's, it's, it's always going to be easier because that guy or that lady gets on your nerves. You live with them. right? They're close. They, they know a lot of your stuff. You know a lot of their stuff. Well, that... that, that That makes mission difficult. We'd much rather be on mission in our minds to people we don't know because it feels better. It makes us feel a righteousness we claim to have and claim to want, but maybe don't. That's not the way the kingdom works, beloved. It doesn't work by proxy. It doesn't work by thoughts or gaining power. Look, it's irrelevant what we wish would happen. I wish for things to change also. You might think I don't because of the way that I talk, but I promise you, I very much do. But this is not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is not search and destroy. The way of Christ is seek and save. He'll decide when that's over. Not you and me. We're not bringing that about. We're not going to turn the world into something Jesus isn't going to turn into kindling. We're not going to do that. We're not going to make the prophecies about the end come untrue by improving mankind. What Jesus has said will happen at the end is going to happen. So why don't we adjust our minds to prepare for that rather than maybe we cannot make it happen? No, we can't. It's going to happen. The Titanic is going down. People are in the water. Therefore, the king comes on a donkey's colt to seek and to save the lost. We are his people. Maybe we can't listen. Maybe we can't then. I I, I don't know. I remember when we had the House, the Senate, and the White House. They didn't overturn Roe v. Wade. I'm tired of listening to it. I'm tired of it. Maybe we can't stop then abortion on demand all over the country by tomorrow, which would be wonderful, but maybe we can't. So what can we do? You see how easy it is to do nothing when the mountain is too big to climb? You could love one woman today, right now, one young girl at a high school that has no clue what she's going to do. Where we all jump on her back and call her name, she has no clue what she's going to do now that she's pregnant. And the boy probably isn't going to help. So maybe we love her, just her. Maybe you love one woman who's considering it today to the point where we take Jesus to her house. And as a result of that, a side effect of that is she keeps her child and then we help her with that because she doesn't know what to do. Nowhere in there did we condone sin. Nowhere in there did we pretend that we don't all need to repent and submit to King Jesus. Nowhere did we compromise anything. We just went to her house. Either literally or figuratively. That's one less, isn't it? That's one. One's better than zero. But it's easier, isn't it? It's just easier to just use November every four years to address the needs and then yap about it for the next four years and nothing changes. That's not the way of Jesus. I know it sounds crazy. And I'm not saying don't vote or something. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, what was Jesus' strategy for his kingdom? You can say, well, Rome was an empire and you had an emperor, and so there weren't the same avenues to bring about change. They were pretty helpless. Uh, This is Jesus. This is five loaves, two fish, feed thousands of people, Jesus. This is walking on the water in the midst of the storm, Jesus, that you and I have as the Lord Of this place and these people. He can't overthrow worldly powers. He can't get past what separates you and your neighbor. Oh beloved. Does Jesus have no strategy for the world? No plan? Beloved this king does not overthrow his enemies by force. But by love and salvation. Jesus never sinned. He never compromised his holiness. He never. So apparently, you can get as close as Jesus did and still be holy. Jesus goes to sinners' houses. <gasps> what if they see him come out of there? They did. And they called him names for it, and then they killed him. Jesus reconciles, he doesn't divide further. Until, so of course, his salvation brings a sword and not peace because he's so subversive without having a sword. He does not arbitrarily give extra minas to hard workers and slaughter his enemies in front of him on public display. Jesus wants us to understand who he is so that we get a better understanding of who we are and our purpose here as his followers and his church. We cannot adapt the world's views On how to overthrow our enemies. And we are not old covenant Israel. We haven't been called to cleanse Canaan. We've been called to make disciples of Canaanites. We go to people's houses. That's what we do. We bring the message of peace from our king. Salvation is the reversal. Of the world's order. Jesus came to bring salvation, not to impose his rule by force or fear. When the church stops talking about Jesus, it has nothing to say. Nothing. And when it fights, fights for or assumes dominance, it isn't talking about Jesus. Jesus wins by saving And to save sinners, he died for them. He did not kill them. He lost. He didn't gain. He served. He didn't receive. He was enthroned on the back of a donkey. Beloved, consider his work in your own life. Because that's what he's doing in the lives of his people. He doesn't come into our lives guns blazing. Get that fixed. Get that in order. Stop that. No, no, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Right? If it isn't that, it isn't Jesus. Remember that. He comes in grace, in mercy, to love and to shepherd us and care for us. His arms are big enough to hold us, strong enough to carry us. He has paid our debt. He's not expecting us to earn anything. He's given us his righteousness He isn't demanding that from us to save us and is still saving us, loving us, keeping us, leading and guiding us by his spirit who will transform our hearts and cause us to follow and obey him and who also leads us back to him for repentance and healing when we don't. That's how he is to us. That's who he is to us. Why do we turn around and treat the world that is lost With this frustrating, oppressive, demanding spirit when we have not been treated that way. Jesus didn't come into our lives telling us that our sin isn't sin. He didn't come into our lives by compromising. So one doesn't equal the other. That's the straw man argument, right? That in order to get close to people, you're gonna have to go too far. No. Apparently not. Now again, I've talked about this before. You'll get called a glutton and a drunk and a tax collector if you eat with tax collectors. Jesus did. Right? It scares us to death. Do you want to be Christ-like or not? Christ-like on my terms, yeah. Yeah. But I actually like Jesus? No, no. (laughs) No, none of us do. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing close to you. Because we're all the same when it comes to that. Jesus is a peaceful conqueror in the world today. Right now. This is who he is in our lives. He's commissioned us in this age as that kind of king. It was seek and save for you and me, thank God, not search and destroy. Because I'd be dead. Don't forget who your king is. Don't forget how Jesus conquers. Right? Don't, don't try to use him to build a kingdom other than his own. Right? I mean, is it possible? <clears throat> Excuse me, is it possible that our desire is for a kingdom of this world? And we're so pro-Jesus because we think he's how we get it. Who do you say that Jesus is? Repent of your sins this morning. All of us. (coughs) Believe the gospel. The message of our only means of salvation through this king, Jesus Christ. If you're lost, he came to find you and to save you. Your sinfulness, which is our lostness, doesn't disqualify you from being saved. It's the very thing that draws him near to you. You're what he's looking for. So come to Jesus. The front will be open this morning for anyone that needs to come and pray. (coughs) I invite you to, or if you want to become a member here, be baptized we invite you to come. But we'll sing a song together and then we'll close. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, God, how we pray that it would hold us together and shape us. How I pray that we would all see our need for the Jesus of Scripture, for him to save us and be our Lord. And we ask and pray these things for mercy in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to fall on all of us. Amen. This morning, everybody, a quick announcement I wanted to make about the information for the services for Judy Wolf, Amber's mother. Visitation will be Tuesday 1 to 4, 6 to 9. This is at Kepner's on Kruger Street in Wheeling. That's Kepner's on Kruger Street in Wheeling. Visitation Tuesday 1 to 4, 6 to 9. Service is Wednesday at 11 a.m. this week. Service is Wednesday. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Our Father, we thank you and rejoice in you for who you are and what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ, for your spirit who makes it all known and real to us by grace through faith. Lord, watch over your people, watch over every family, watch over our hearts and our minds. We ask and pray these things as we go in your grace and peace in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.